You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gold. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabanakti, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Thanks, Alex, for that Bible reading. Uh, please do uh, have the welcome card open, or have your Bibles open, even better, if you've got your Bibles here. Uh, but if you go to the welcome card, you'll see there's an outline for today's uh, sermon uh, in the Bible passage there as well. Let's pray uh, as we come to think about God's Word. And by the way, I'm Adam, one of the pastors here, if you haven't met me before. Now let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather on this Good Friday morning uh, to reflect on the death of Jesus. Uh, we pray that you would speak to us through your word uh, and help us to, to know you better. Amen. 
what does Christianity have to offer the world? I imagine many people would say, well, nothing. And still more people would say, well, nothing but trouble. Uh, Recently, my son Noah was messaging a school friend and got into a debate about something. And then he started sending messages to Noah about how Christians are dumb. Now, I don't know how it came to this, but one of his key arguments was that Asian food is better than Christian food. Noah tried to point out that there's no such thing as Christian food and that even Asians can be Christians. But then his friend sent this interesting link to an article about, Christian, about the Christian right in America and how they use the Bible to justify doing horrible things. And after that, he refused to respond anymore. It was as if he had delivered his mic drop argument. That was it. Obviously, Christianity is wrong. Now, we've all had that conversation where someone thinks that Christianity is just about politics and usually, in their mind, bad politics. All they think Christianity has to offer the world is an outdated and domineering approach to society. Uh, This was unhelpfully reinforced for me last week at my wife Tracy's graduation ceremony. Uh, She's finished her Bible degree, uh, uh, sorry, her degree at Bible College, which is very exciting. And so we invited both sets of parents to come along to the ceremony, and my brother came along too. He's not a Christian. There was a visiting speaker, and he gave an address on the importance of theological education by pointing out how our society in Victoria has lost its way in terms of identity politics, marriage, personal freedom, and a whole bunch of other things. Now, while I agreed with pretty much everything he said, I still kept glancing nervously at my brother as this speaker railed against some of his most deeply held convictions. And afterwards, my heart was heavy because I felt like the way the talk was delivered only further reinforced, confirmed my brother's belief that all Christianity has to offer the world is an ethical framework and an outdated and harmful one at that. Now, I could go on with more stories. I'm sure you all have your own stories you can share from school, work, family dinners. Uh, And perhaps if you're here today or even listening online and you're not a Christian, you might feel like I'm just reinforcing your conviction that Christianity is not worth your time. But here's the thing, what Christianity truly offers the world is not an approach to politics, it's not a guide to ethical living, it's not a social network for building supportive relationships, it's not a strategy to unlocking a successful life. The key thing that Christianity offers the world is a message about the death of a man. At the very heart of Christianity is a man dying on a wooden cross 2,000 years ago. It's the shameful death of Jesus, which was his greatest deed for those who believe. So come with me as we explore Matthew 27. We're going to look at verses 27 through to 56. And I want to show you why this is the key. And we're going to do this by investigating the points you'll see in the outline. Uh, We're going to look at his shameful coronation, his quiet death, and the glorious results of his death. So let's jump into the shameful coronation of the king. After studying Matthew for quite a long time here at DPC, we're finally here 
the final couple of chapters, the climax of the story, it's very exciting. Uh, Jesus has been arrested, he's been put on trial before the Jewish leaders, they've condemned him of blasphemy, and they've sent him off to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, so that he can be executed. We now see in Matthew 27, verse 27, that Pilate's soldiers, they take Jesus off to the side, and they mock him and they beat him. But in the midst of this, they coronate him, they crown him as king. You can see in verse 28, they put a scarlet robe on him. In verse 29, they put a crown on his head and they give him a staff, like a a scepter. They kneel before him and they say, Hail, King of the Jews! But this is all about shaming and mocking Jesus, isn't it? You see, the robe is all that he's wearing because they've stripped off all of his clothes. The crown is made of thorns that have been twisted together and it causes his head to bleed as they shove it on and the sharp points dig in. And later they take that stuff and they hit him over the head with it. This is a shameful coronation, but a coronation nevertheless. And this makes sense because Matthew has gone to great lengths as he's written out this biography of Jesus to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He truly is the King of the Jews. And we shouldn't be surprised that his coronation is shameful because Jesus has been warning his disciples again and again that he'll be mistreated, he'll be killed, and it's all part of God's good plan. He has told them he will be a suffering Messiah. And so here we are. Jesus is finally revealed as the King and he will soon be killed. After they've had their fun, The soldiers lead Jesus away and they nail him to a cross. Have a look at verse 37. Above his head, they place the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Can you see the irony here? And he's been mocked as the pretend king, but his death is actually his greatest work as the true king. The shame and the insults keep coming as Jesus is on the cross. Uh, You'll see that the two men either side of him are also being crucified. They decide to join him. In verse 39, people are passing by and they, they take time out of their day to hurl some extra insults at Jesus as they go past. In verse 41, we see the Jewish leaders are all there. Verse 42 says this, He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. They are killing the king. They are shaming the saviour. And in all of this, Jesus doesn't strike back. In fact, he's almost completely silent. Which brings us to our next point, the quiet death. You know, as I was carefully reading through this passage, something really struck me. Jesus only speaks once. In Luke and John's accounts of the crucifixion, Jesus has more to say, but not here in Matthew. And this is unusual for our biographer, because Matthew records lots of extra sermons and teaching from Jesus not found elsewhere, yet now the Messiah is all but silent. This teacher is tight-lipped. And even Matthew himself is restrained in the extra commentary that he's adding. Uh, You might recall that he goes to great lengths to show how Jesus is the fulfilment of Scripture. 
He adds in all these extra Bible quotes that aren't found in the other three Gospels. Even last week we saw that he wanted to show that Judas's death was foretold and so he kind of took these different Old Testament references and made this kind of mega quote just to prove that. Yet there's none of that in this passage. Matthew is very restrained. It's as if he wants us to simply observe. He's given us all of the evidence that we need to show that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Son of God, and now he just takes a step back and he trusts that we can figure it out. Another observation as I read through this passage is that Jesus is all but passive. There's virtually no active verbs describing what he's doing. The the soldiers are beating him. Uh, He's not even said to carry his cross by Matthew. Uh, It's Simon of Cyrene who carries the cross. The people that are all around him, they're the ones talking, yelling and sneering, yet Jesus is almost still. I mean, can you picture it in your mind? There's kind of all these angry people flailing about, hustle and bustle, activity and noise everywhere, and in the centre of it all is a silent man on a cross, not moving, not talking. That's where the focus is meant to be. And he may appear to be passive, but he's doing his greatest work ever. Do you notice in verse 34 that he's offered some wine mixed with gall? That's a natural anaesthetic and it's meant to numb the pain of crucifixion, but he refuses. And this is a clue as to what Jesus is facing. He wants to be conscious as he endures the pain of the cross. And do you see what he says in verse 46? These are the only words he says in this passage. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Matthew helpfully translates these Aramaic words of Jesus. But interestingly, Matthew doesn't tell us that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. You can look that up later. But the key is that it's a prophetic psalm that speaks of the Messiah's shameful suffering, which leads to salvation and glory. Jesus is doing his greatest deed by bearing the judgment that you and I deserve. Here is the Saviour sacrificing his life for us. He's enduring the displeasure of God. He's being forsaken. He's experiencing the fate that we deserve. Our self-centered living, our harsh words, our obsession with pleasure, our desire to be in control of our lives, our pride as we look down on others that we think are not as good as us. All of these put us at odds with God who wants us to live another way, to live for Him. And, and these behaviors will ultimately lead to complete separation from God. In other words, everlasting death, darkness and despair forsakenness. But Jesus endures that separation, that agonizing punishment, that overwhelming darkness and horror. As Jesus suffers and dies on the cross, he is completing his greatest deed for those who believe in him. Let me show you why I think this is the case by looking at our third point, the glorious result of Jesus' shameful death. The first is access to God through Jesus' blood. 
After Jesus dies, we read this at the start of verse 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So God dwelled in the temple in Jerusalem in a special way. Uh, People would pray to the temple. People would go there to do business with God. But only the priests could go behind the curtain to come into God's holy presence. And they had to do so with the protection of blood. They'd offer a sacrifice and they'd sprinkle blood as they went behind the curtain as a way to cleanse their sins, to make themselves pure enough to be in God's holy presence. And so the significance of the curtain being torn at the moment of Jesus' death is to say that the way is wide open to God. We all know that to achieve big things, it often takes great sacrifice. You know, blood, sweat and tears. Well, Jesus has shed His blood, sweat and tears for us. He has achieved something monumental. By His blood, we can come into God's presence without fear of being struck down in our sinfulness. We are covered by Jesus' blood. The second glorious result of Jesus' death is the new life of the resurrection age. I don't know if you picked it up, but there's this weird couple of verses in this passage. Only Matthew shares this with us, verses 51 to 53. Let me read it out for us. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Now, the more I read this, the more questions I have. I mean, who were these people? How long did they sit in their tombs before they walked into Jerusalem? What happened to them after they went to Jerusalem? Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to answer these questions, but if you'd like to chat about it, if that's your thing, come and talk to me afterwards, because it's my thing too. Uh, Also, you'll see there's an article linked in the outline. You can go check out that article online. What I want us to see right now is that these dead believers came back to life in connection to Jesus' death and resurrection. His death on the cross paid the debt that humanity owes to God and paved the way for everlasting life to be received. And so to show that the resurrection age wasn't just for Jesus to enjoy, God raised these other people up as well as a testimony to what Jesus had accomplished. It was not just for Him, but for all people. This current age, which is ruled by death, disease, destruction, it will one day end because Jesus has poured out his life as an offering. And so these resurrected believers, this odd story, these resurrected believers are a foretaste of what awaits all who will put their trust in Jesus. Aaron's going to speak about that more on Easter Sunday. Well, the final glorious result of Jesus' death is that it's proof of his identity as the Son of God. There's one extra difference between Matthew's account and the other Gospels. He alone has the Jewish leaders mockingly refer to Jesus as the Son of God while he's on the cross. I think Matthew wants us to see that just as the Roman soldiers unknowingly crowned Jesus as king, so too the Jewish leaders unknowingly identified Jesus as who he really is, the Son of God. 
And this is confirmed in verse 54. Check it out. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. Well, what did they see? They saw an innocent man who didn't lash out when beaten. He didn't speak up when he was slandered and abused. He didn't beg for his life as he endured an excruciating death on the cross. There had been darkness across the whole land for hours. And at the moment that Jesus died, there was an earthquake that shook the whole earth. Surely that would have been enough to put the fear of God into anyone. Matthew wants us to know this is Jesus' true identity. He is the Son of God and His death reveals it. So, I hope you can see that even though Jesus' death was painful and shameful, it was His greatest deed. It's what makes salvation possible. It's what makes reconciliation, peace with God possible. It's what makes everlasting, eternal life possible. At the heart of Christianity is the death of Jesus. And so let me leave you with two ways now that you can keep the cross at the heart of your faith. The first way is to remember that Christianity offers the world a message of salvation, not an ethical, political or social system. You see, when we put anything else at the centre of Christianity, we give people reasons to walk away. You know, what if we say the heart of Christianity is an ethical framework to help people live better? That's what we have to offer the world. Well, some people will just look elsewhere. After all, even Christians don't follow their own rules. Look at all the scandals among church leaders. Look at the church members who are all just hypocrites. And others will take those Christian values and follow them, but without any reference to Jesus or God or the Bible. Well, what if we say the heart of Christianity is a worldview that helps us to better engage in politics? Well, some people will assume that at best we're trying to impose outdated values and ways of viewing the world, and others will say, well, at worst, we're using our religion just to justify our power, our, uh, sorry, our hunger for power and control. We just want to be in charge. Well, what if we say the heart of Christianity is a social network that helps people from different backgrounds to come together and be supported and encouraged? Some people just laugh and say, well, look at all the different denominations you Christians have. And what about all the infighting that churches have? Others will argue that they get all of their social needs met by their existing relationships. You see, none of these things can be at the heart of Christianity because many people will feel they can get better alternatives elsewhere. They will also say each of these things reveal that Christians are hypocrites. They can't even keep their own rules. But most importantly, these things don't give people what they truly need. See, what we need, what the world needs, is salvation. It's peace with God. We need His merciful forgiveness. We need the hope of everlasting life in renewed bodies, in a renewed world. We need the knowledge that our lives do have meaning because we can be connected to the creator of the universe. All of these and more come through the death of Jesus and through his death alone. 
You see, Christianity offers the world's greatest news ever, the message of salvation, which is a free gift to all who will come to Jesus in faith. And then flowing from this salvation, once you start there, then you see that the way we view the world is transformed. That impacts on our ethics and our politics and our relationships. But we can't start with those things and hope that people will come to God from that. The death of Jesus then impacts on our hopes and our dreams, our values, our work, our hobbies, everything, but it has to start at the cross. You see, when people reject Christianity, we want to make sure they're rejecting the death of Jesus on their behalf, not a lifestyle or a political agenda or a worldview or a social club that they deem unnecessary. Well, my second recommendation for keeping the cross at the heart of your, uh, heart of your faith is to trust that Jesus has done all of the work to save you. This is especially true if you're not yet a Christian. And I hope you've heard me clearly say today that Christianity is fundamentally about a message of salvation. It's good news about how to have a secure hope for the future. And you know, as much as I would hate you to reject Christianity because you misunderstand what it's about... I'd be even sadder if you rejected it because you thought you could save yourself. See, there's nothing we can do to make ourselves good enough for God because His standards are perfect. That's why He sent Jesus. And so I encourage you to stop clinging to your own efforts and instead take hold of the death of Jesus. Trust that He's done everything needed to bring you into a life-giving relationship with God. And for all of those of you here, uh, who are here today or listening, watching online, if you're already a Christian, then may this passage be a reminder to you that you can rest easy in your Saviour, in the King. He's done the greatest deed on your behalf by offering His own life. And so this should humble us too and remind us that we don't follow Jesus because we're somehow smarter than others or that we're morally superior, or we're more self-aware. So that's often what people don't like when we present different ways of understanding the world. They think we're saying these things because we're proud. Actually, no, we've been humbled and realised we don't understand the world properly, but God has spoken to us in His Word, through His Son, in the death of Jesus. We've been humbled. We have realised that we are desperately needy people who have been offered the free gift of salvation. So surely this will help us to engage with others in a humble way that doesn't suggest that we think we're better because we're Christians. I'm going away on holidays with my brother next week. Looking forward to it. Sending him a text the other day and I said, hey, it'd be great to have a chat about the address that we heard at Tracy's graduation. And he's agreed to have a short conversation about it. And you know what? I don't want it to be a debate about politics or morality. Rather, I want him to come away hearing that the key thing about Christianity is the message of salvation, the message that Jesus has died. Because at the heart of Christianity is the shameful death of Jesus, which is the greatest deed for those who believe. And surely we want everyone to believe this good news. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the death of Jesus and its wonderful results. Help us to enjoy our access to you now through prayer and praise. 
Help us to hold on to the hope of eternal life. Help us to celebrate that the Son of God has given His life for us. Amen.